Well, hey guys, thanks for coming back. Week three of uh, Pause. You did it. You made it. And uh, so grateful to have you all back here tonight. We're actually going to start tonight, honor everybody who was here on time. We're going to actually start with a little video by the Bible Project. Anybody, Tim Mackey, your Bible Project fans? Yeah, got a few of you guys. Everybody should uh, follow the Bible Project. They are fantastic. They do a great job of taking great big subjects and really making them simple for all of us uh, commoners, if you will. And they did a little uh, five-minute video uh, that really summarizes all we talked about uh, last week as we talked about the soul. So take a look, and this will kind of, if you weren't here last week, you'll be all caught up after five minutes. Um, And if you were, this will be a great little refresher. So take a look. Thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the word soul. The Hebrew word is nefesh. It occurs over 700 times in the Old Testament. The common English translation of this word is soul, and that's kind of unfortunate. Here's why. The English word soul comes with lots of baggage from ancient Greek philosophy. It's the idea that the soul is a non-physical, immortal essence of a person that's contained or trapped in their body to be released at death. It's a ghost in the machine kind of idea. This notion is totally foreign to the Bible. It's not at all what nephesh means in biblical Hebrew. The most basic meaning of nephesh is throat. Like when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, they're hungry and thirsty, and they say to God, we miss the cucumbers and melons we had in Egypt. Now our nephesh has dried up. Or when Joseph was hauled off into slavery in Egypt, his nephesh was put into iron shackles. But nephesh doesn't only mean throat. Since your whole life and body depend on what comes in and out of your throat, nephesh could also be used to refer to the whole person. Like in Genesis, there were 33 nephesh in Jacob's family, that is, 33 people. In the Torah, a murderer is called a nephesh slayer, and a kidnapper is called a nephesh thief. On the first pages of the Bible, both humans and animals are called a living nephesh, and if the life breath has left a human or animal, the nephesh remains. It's just called a dead nephesh, that is, a corpse. So, in the Bible, people don't have a nephesh. Rather, they are a nephesh, a living, breathing, physical being. Now, that might surprise you because most people assume the Bible says the soul is what survives apart from the body after death. And while the biblical authors do have a concept of people existing after death, waiting for their resurrection, they rarely talk about it. And when they do, they don't use the word nephesh. So even though nephesh is often translated as soul, the Hebrew word really refers to the whole human as a living physical organism. In fact, this is why biblical people can often use this word to refer to themselves. And gets translated me or I. Like in Psalm 119, most translations read, let me live that I may praise you. In Hebrew, the poet literally says, let my nephesh live that it may praise you. By using nephesh, the poet emphasizes that their entire being, their life and their body offer thanks to God. In the Song of Songs, the young woman constantly refers to her lover as the one my nephesh loves. And of course, love isn't just an intellectual experience, it's an emotion that activates your whole body, your entire nephesh. This helps us understand the brilliance of other biblical poets who could combine multiple meanings of nephesh in one place. Like in Psalm 42, we read, 
As the deer pants for the water, so my nephesh pants after you. My nephesh thirsts for the living God. So on a physical level, your throat can be thirsty like a deer's, but then that physical thirst can become a metaphor for how your whole physical being longs to know and be known by your creator. Which brings us all the way back to the Shema. To love God with all of your nefesh means to devote your whole physical existence to your creator, the one who granted us these amazing bodies in the first place. It's about offering your entire being with all of its capabilities and limitations in the effort to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the Hebrew word for soul. All right. So everybody say nefesh. Hope you all figured out. It's a great word, isn't it? Nefesh. Just a great word. Hopefully that, uh, that rings a bell a little bit from, uh, from last week, our time. We talked about how um, the soul, uh, the nefesh, actually it, it, it integrates multiple functions into one. I gave a few examples of things that do that. What is something I said? Anybody remember? I'll even throw you some candy if you remember. Tree. Who said tree? Great job. Yeah. Tree. Anybody else? Don't want to hit your baby. Anybody else besides tree? We even mentioned that they go to hell. Huh? What? Dogs. They go to heaven. That's right. Dogs go to heaven. That's right. Cats go to hell. That's right. But they do have souls. Um, anybody? They don't really. I don't know. But I just, it's my, it's my, it's my, it's my assumption and my bias and, and my PTSD probably. Um, anybody? Okay. It, it was one more thing I mentioned. Anybody else Remember? We talked about a dishwasher timer, kind of puts multiple things together. So anything that puts multiple things together, that's the sole function of why. Uh, and it's why it's also, also kind of hard to put into words what we feel. All right. Also, we created a class mantra when we talked about our need for relationships last week. Anybody remember our class mantra? Car- Carolyn. Then broccoli alone. That's exactly right. Better to eat. Oh, I bounced it off the chair. Better to eat a Dairy Queen blizzard with friends than broccoli alone. That's exactly right. So that's our class mantra. Uh, so we'll make t-shirts uh, for later, later in the year. All right. We talked about how there can be a phenomenon that like if you have like one cookie, but then like you eat like 13 cookies, there's, there's a phenomenon. What might know what that's called? What yeah. Good job, Cindy. You got that one. Uh, my wife did rebuke me for saying hell at church when I got home, uh, and so I told her I was sorry, but there's just no better word to describe that effect than, uh, than hell, because it actually does describe what happens when, when we go, oh, what am I, I don't care, and, I, and we kind of go overboard in doing all the things that we do. Okay, grandparents, we said there's a, a real surefire way for you to live a long and happy and prosperous life. What is it? Yeah, don't let your kids go to college, Okay. Why did we say that? Do I remember? Yeah, because according to professors, what they had found is that around finals time, um, it's amazing how many students have grandparents that pass away. It's just, it just always sen- tends to happen. And so the whole point of what they learned, what the psychi- psychologists learned at that time, is that We said here in the middle core of our being is our will, our heart, our spirit. This is the core of who we are. And we will make a decision here to lie. But we don't want it to be like too big of a deal, all right? But then outside of our will, heart, and spirit is our mind, which includes our thoughts and our feelings, both of those. But 
we don't, we, our mind has to believe we're a pretty good person, that we're a pretty truthful person. So we won't tell too big of a lie. But when, when we do that, what we've done is we've caused a disintegration between our mind and our, and our will. We'll, we want to get out of the, out of the f- final, but don't want to think that we're that bad of a person. So what we'll do is then when I see you, though, on campus, and I was like, I thought your grandfather died. Now I have to manage my face. And now I have to do something here that causes disintegration with my body, my mind, and my will, which will affect my social relationship with you. And then you start to feel my soul outside of me and inside of me. And this is what we said causes disintegration. Everybody with me so far? Everybody remember that? I know we use a lot of psychological terms, so I thought I'd just kind of bring us back. And so what we said as we ended our time is that each of these need needs something uh, very deeply. We said that that our will must be, remember? Surrendered. surrendered. Very good. This must be surrendered. Our mind must be transformed. transformed. Our body has to be retrained, retrained and empowered. empowered. Our relationships must be authenticated. It's not just a verb, but not really. That's not it. And uh, our soul must be Saved from the sinful condition it's in. That's exactly right. Because what we talked about is that the will is drained by everything except one thing. What is it? What? Surrender. The will is drained by everything except one thing, and it's surrender. So this is really interesting. When I emailed you guys last Thursday about class this week, I said, do you have any questions or comments? Send them in. Donna Stewart couldn't be here tonight. Her uh, son and daughter-in-law, who are missionaries overseas, are are in town this evening, which is actually where I'm going at 731 to go be with her, her son for a dinner they're doing for him. And uh, she thought that was an interesting dynamic. I made the comment that addicts will tell you that you are not set free by willpower, but by surrender. She has a nephew and a niece that have struggled for, that struggled for years with alcoholism. So she sent this to her, to her nephew and said, I know you've been 10 years sober. You work with alcoholics. What do you think about this comment this preacher guy said at church? And she said he uh, responded immediately and said this. And this is interesting because she said he's not a believer yet, though I'm working on him. And he responded immediately and said, uh, Donna, it's funny you should bring that topic up. I was just watching a biography about the man who founded AA last night. Willfulness is definitely an enemy of recovery in my experience. If good intentions and determination were able to overcome the physical and mental obsession of an addict, there would be no addiction. Surrender and honesty coupled with willingness to try something you haven't before and get uncomfortable for a time are crucial. And then he said, ponder the difference between willfulness and willingness. thought that was a really interesting statement from a man who's overcome addiction and... uh, and uh, it's talking about the power of surrender. Again, we're saying surrender. We're talking about that inner place of freedom and just abandoning the outcomes to God and saying, Lord, I'm surrendered to you and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow your, your ways um, in this process. So anyway, um, any other comments or questions from last week that you wanted to bring up? I know some people sent more comments in as we went. Carrie, why don't you say that comment you sent me? Do you remember what it was? Soul 
soul care versus self care. It just made it more about it, yeah, just more about not just me, but even others. Like if my soul gets the health and healing it needs, mm-hmm. then it affects everyone around me versus just a nice day of self care. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Uh, just uh, on the idea of disintegration, uh, I had a um, a pastor or, or someone once uh, define holiness as God is totally integrated. Hmm. And the idea yeah. that integration is actually it's great. a definition for holiness. And it so is. When we're disintegrated, uh, that shows our fracturedness. That's right. So even when... You know, I think it was Peter that talks about, so be holy as I am holy. And um, and then there's even kind of this call to be perfect. None of us could be perfect, but there is a wholeness. There is an, an alignment that we can uh, come into. It's a really, really great point. Um, I know that some of you mentioned things like, sent me some t- emails saying, something along the lines of, you know, you're giving me language for some things that I've been feeling, things I've been experiencing. I'm grateful uh, for that. Where do we go from here? And that's a little bit what we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. So um, I think it's interesting. Some, they, they say that at the end of AA meetings, they will all grab hands and say uh, something along something along the lines of, um, you know, what does it say? Well, I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it. Um, yeah, keep coming back. It works. <laughs> keep coming back. It works. So they have to all look at each other in the eyes and say, keep coming back. It works. And so this is one of those things, like we said, we're not going for like a quick seven-week fix, but we're more just like, keep coming back. Let's keep doing the slow, messy work, and we're going to trust that God will do uh, what he needs to do at a deep level. Um, did anybody get to do the little soul care exercise we did? We talked about, we passed out the alignment, yeah? A few of y'all. How, how was that for y'all? Was that positive, negative, hard, easy, clarifying, pain in the butt? Where did where, 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 it go? Gail. Yeah, it was really helpful because it kind of showed me some wounds that related to that. Oh, really? So it was tied to something I've been believing and hmm. some fear, and so it was really helpful. Uh, That's great. Thank you, Gail, for sharing that. Anybody else? Steve. Uh, yeah, I felt like it was good for me as well. It, it kind of took me to some places where I've become habituated. You know, it wasn't mm. just... Anyway, there's a lot to dig underneath. That's all I'm yeah. trying to say. And the, the discipline of that exercise was helpful in, in me with the Lord digging a little bit and then taking back to the Lord to know where do we go from here. That's good. Yeah, that's great. I know that those things aren't necessarily easy, um, but um, as we go along, hopefully they'll be... Like you said, I like that word habituate. It actually helps you habituate, put these things into motion and make them become as, uh, as, uh, as normal as possible, as very effortless, actually. Um, that's why part of what we're doing is making this experiential. Yes, I'm giving you a lot of information, too, but, but what we're talking about here is at the core of your being, this is not transformed by information. It's a lot of people with great, lots of, lots of uh, you know, doc, doctorates on the wall but would say, why can't I change? They've got more information than all of us, and it may be just an, an everyday kind of normal commenter would say, but I've experienced surrender at a deeper level. That's where you get transformation. It's the, it's the experience that we're going for more than anything. Um, because once you have that experience, then it can play into your mind, and, and it can get into your habits, and then it just becomes like you're tying your shoe. 
And so that's why those experiences are important to do, not for legalism or anything like that. It just helps it become an effortless part of your, of your journey, and that's where renewal can, can really kick in. So last week we were talking about the disintegration and how this can kind of go all different ways. So this week we're going to talk a little bit about kind of where, you know, how to intersect that material you got last week with, okay, so if I am disintegrating or if I'm trying to figure out why do I not always feel connected to God or why do I feel stuck or, you know, what is causing some of that? So we're going to delve a little bit more into this, a little bit more psychological deep dive if you're okay with that. And this will hit into some of our emotions. Everybody love talking about your emotions? Yeah. Really fun preaching about it, let me tell you. It's great because you get to tell experiences from your life. And so this is not, uh, this is not always an easy topic to, to delve into, and I understand that. So what I thought I would do as we begin our time is, uh, you know, just like I said, we want it to be experiential. That's why we've done Lecto Divina. We're doing, you know, Q&A or these exercises. Um, the first week we did a breath prayer, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And uh, during my sabbatical, I came across... Um, something called the Jesus Prayer. And it's on the front of your packet, actually, if you got a packet. And you probably, if you're a Bible reader, might have heard this before. But um, I learned a story that there was a Russian pilgrim, basically, he was in the 1800s. He uh, basically had a, a pretty tough, he was a poor young man, and he had a pretty tough growing up. He was an orphan. And then uh, his his uh, brother stole his inheritance. He got married. His wife died soon after and was just in a really low place, homeless, was just wandering around. But he had a longing for God, so he would go to church on Sundays. And uh, he basically showed up at church one Sunday, and he wrote in this journal that the pastor preached out of 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. And those three words just captured him. And he was like, I want that. That's what I want with God. So as the story goes, he would go town to town, and he would meet people and say, do you know how to pray without ceasing? And one by one, they would say, no, I don't know how to do that. Well, he came to, comes into this one village, and there was a, a it's called a Russian starets. It's like a, a, a spiritual elder, a, a holy one. He came across and said, do you know how to pray without ceasing? And the man was skilled in walking with people who were in spiritual dry seasons and uh, had walked through dark night of the soul type moments. And um, he introduced him to this simple prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, as you see on the, on the front of your, of your packet there, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Later editions had it, had, have mercy on me as a, a sinner. And this was brought up from, the, from desert fathers of the 3rd and the 4th century. And they had took, taken this one prayer, this one sentence from a couple different places in Scripture. One is the, the tax collector beating his breast saying, you know, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, one was the blind man who cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And we don't, there was no sin related to that, but it was, he needed, he needed the mercy of God to engage him where he was. And so this pilgrim just learned this one prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And he began to just say it throughout the day and began to realize it was activating something in him. He was saying it so often that he started interacting with God at a level he didn't even wasn't always saying the words, but he was in union with God. Uh, he journaled that at one point he was saying it over 3,000 times a day. So if you do the math, it would, if you do that every 10 seconds, it would take you eight hours and 20 minutes of saying that prayer every 10 seconds. 
So when I, when I heard this, I was like, well, I've got no shot. I don't see 3,000 times in my future. I'm on sabbatical, and I still won't pull that off. But I want to start learning how to do this. And so I would just begin my day sometimes by just breathing in, just Lord Jesus Christ, breathe out, have mercy on me. And as I've often said, during my sabbatical, I prayed less words probably than ever before and actually experienced more communion than I had in a long time. There was just something about me interacting with God, keeping my heart before Him that trained me even when I was doing other things. It's like my heart and soul were connecting with the Lord. And so I just thought we could begin tonight as we're talking about emotions, talking about some deeper stuff by just engaging and interacting with the mercy of God. Um, not necessarily because we need His forgiveness for sin, but just because it's a, it's a cleanser for our wounds and for our emotions, some of the things you were talking about, Gail. So I want to encourage you to, to begin the way we've been beginning. Just you can close your eyes and Open your hands if it helps you to. And I'm just going to actually just, you know, set a little timer here on my phone. And uh, just want to encourage you over these next three minutes not to be in a hurry and to just breathe in with this Lord Jesus Christ and hold it. And then breathe out slowly. Have mercy on me. And just let this be a breath prayer that, again, kind of, Maybe start with the body, start with the mouth, and start with breathing in and breathing out, but it could just bring some peace to the soul as well. So I just want to encourage you over these next few minutes, it'll be silent, and that you don't have to worry about what's next. Just be present at least three minutes of just, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And just say that over and over again. Taking those deep breaths and just be present with the Lord.
There you go. Would you do me a favor? Just turn to your neighbor and say, how was that for you? Have you ever done a breath prayer before? You know, uh, you feel like you're getting a little bit better at this or feel like you're getting worse at this? Just turn to neighbor and share how that was for you. Go for it. You might want to share publicly what you just shared, or throw your friend under the bus for what they shared. Let's hear from one person. What's one thing? Really relaxing. David, you said you've, you've shared with your life group about doing this some, right? How'd that go? <laughs> yeah, I kind of explain how I do this in my quiet time or my time with the Lord and to kind of like center myself to kind of like just focus in, I guess. And uh, I was really excited to share and uh, I just got bored. <laughs> you know, if I'd been in your life group a couple of years ago, I'd have given you a blank stare. You know, it's, it's amazing. When you hit the wall, all of a sudden you're open to all types of things to to experience the presence of God and to learn. And I love that, you know, Jimmy gave us the little red dot to put on our phone. And that's really what it is. It's that invitation to just abide with him in those simple things. So I, th- I, said, I really mean it. You know, while we're sharing this evening, feel free, just keep saying that breath prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And if you're distracted from what I'm saying because you're lost in that little world, it could be the best thing for you. Um, but we will uh, we'll kind of, you know, move on and, and share some other things uh, this evening. But feel free to just keep abiding as you as we move forward. So, um, question for you: Who has seen the movie Apollo thirteen? Who has not seen the movie Apollo thirteen? Okay, hit those people. Um, uh, this is one of my favorite one of my favorite movies. Uh, came out in nineteen ninety five. So I'm gonna just tell you what happened at the end. And if you didn't see it, spoil. I'm going to spoil it for you. All right, don't give me that. We were gonna go watch it afterwards. Okay, you weren't. Okay. Um, <laughs> I am going to uh, just blow it and tell you what happens at the end. You're watching, obviously, these are three actors. They are representing uh, a man by the name of Fred Hayes, Jack Swaggart, and Jim Lovell. And they are on a mission right after Neil Armstrong had put his first foot on the, on, the, on the moon. They are now going back to the moon to do some further exploration. And uh, while they are there, they have this moment. Once they get up into space, they can kind of breathe a little bit. They go through all these protocols. And they have this moment where their commander, Jim, on the far right, turns to Jack there in the middle, and he says, stir the tanks. And just 
the pilot, as the pilot, he says, yes, sir, stirring the tanks. And if you go back and watch it, you'll notice they almost do like this slow-mo where he's like just doing a standard protocol, pushing a button. And he pushes the button, and what do they feel? Bam! Bam! An explosion goes off. Well, it ticks everybody off, and they look at Jack, and they're like, what'd you do? And he's like, I just stirred the tanks. That's what, it's no big deal. And so they start rushing around. They look outside, and they see a gaseous substance flowing out in space. What is it? It's the oxygen. And they go, oh, no, it's the oxygen. And you hear those famous words, Houston, we have a problem. And they have to dissect this problem. And as they do, they realize that this is going to take them a lot to get back. And Jim Level on the right says, we just lost the moon. You watch the movie because you're wondering if they lost their lives. Then they almost do lose their lives. But they make it back. Uh, spoiler alert, they get back. And they get back. And what the last minute is is most intriguing part of the whole movie to me. Because while Jim Level, Tom Hanks' voice is narrating what happens, he, he says this. He says, it was determined that a damaged coil in the oxygen tank that was placed in the spacecraft two years before I had even been named commander had simply been triggered, causing the explosion. Meaning, what'd you do? It wasn't Jack's fault. He just stirred the tanks. And it wasn't Jim's fault. He gave the command. But that something that had already been laid into the fabric of the spacecraft for a long time, then was activated. This explosion happens, and we found out that there would be some real problems, and it really almost cost them their life. So there was actually a thing beneath the thing. It wasn't the stirring of the tanks. There was something underneath the tanks that caused the problem. So your title tonight is The Thing Beneath the Thing. Can we say that together? The Thing Beneath the Thing. So when people ask me about some of the spiritual renewal I've experienced recently, a lot of times they're like, what book did you do? What practice did you do that we can start emulating? And I wish I could say, this is what you do. Um, But it was actually a long, messy road that I'm still on, actually, of paying a lot of attention to the stuff beneath the surface in my life that had just accrued over a lot of years. So last week, we talked about looking under the hood and trying to do more than just throwing Coke on the battery. I had to ask myself a question, and here's the, here's the question. You're, it's in your packet, and it's this. What is buried beneath the surface that I may not even be aware of? That's a key phrase. That God wants to resurrect so I can be healed, free, and whole. I love that last word. What's buried beneath the surface that I may not even be aware of? That God wants to resurrect so I can be healed, free and whole. This is why I said it can be a sensitive topic of what we talk about. Meaning, are there any damaged coils that are inside of my spacecraft that have been there that I may not even realize? Then someone pushes a button and stirs a tank, an explosion takes place, and I'm like, Houston, we have another problem. What did you do? But it could be that there's a damaged coil I need to pay attention to. Now, when I began to, to do this digging, I I can be kind of hard on myself. Like I told you, I'm a, I'm a one on the Enneagram. Ones tend to have this inner critic kind of getting on them at all times. This was not a, a desire to be perfect. This was not some perfectionistic deal. It was actually based in curiosity. It was more like a movie where I'm kind of looking off to the side of myself and watching me on a daily basis and going, Carl, I wonder why you do what you do. And curiosity was my uh, gift from God. 
He gave me a gift of curiosity, and that became then an invitation to interact with him. Less about, crap, I did this again. Why do I keep doing this? Which is where I can go. And more like, huh, I wonder why I do that. I wonder what's over in the spacecraft. This was a game changer for me. So that's where we're going to go tonight. That's my invitation. You, you get those two invitations tonight. Your two invitations is I want you to step into curiosity and reject condemnation right now, okay? You're going to reject condemnation. You're going to receive just some curiosity that's going to help you dig into, into why you might do what you do and then have that invitation to just interact with God as your heavenly Father who might go, hey, there's a coil here I want to show you so that an explosion in space doesn't happen, all right? So, so let's just think about it. On that exercise, if anybody did the exercise last week, it said, what's one thing you're wanting to change? Even if you didn't do the exercise, that's probably not hard for you. What's one thing in your life you'd want to change? Anybody mind saying it out loud? Don't take us into the throes of despair, but just, you know, if there's something. I wrote, hurry, especially in the car. If you remember that, that was mine. Something else. Anger, anger response. response. We're going to talk about that tonight, Steve. Yeah, jumping on yourself. Anybody else? Oh, wow. Let's just all do ministry time right now. Uh, I, could, I could go right there with you, okay? So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to teach you to do what we call backwards thinking. A lot of times people are like, You're, that's backwards thinking. You're going to be trained how to do backwards thinking tonight, all right? Because that's how we dig on the thing beneath the thing. Because what happens is we often tell people, you need to stop overspending. You need to stop over-talking. You're really defensive. You need to not be defensive anymore. College pastor for 11 years. Stop porn. Stop looking at porn. You can tell people to stop all day long, but if you don't start asking why, it's not real helpful because we don't get to the root. So tonight, that's what we're going to do. We are going to stop telling people to stop and start asking why. If you're like seven years old in the room, there's some things you need to see to stop, all right? Don't hit her anymore. Stop it, okay? <clears throat> but now you're 47, and you're going, okay, why? Why? I didn't hit her, but I kind of wanted to. Why? I just trained my behavior not to, but it doesn't mean I didn't, didn't want to, all right? Lesson number one, getting stuck on behavioral change will suffocate you. And if, if you've lived there a long time as a Christian, you know, you, you feel that wipe out, like, what else? This is why some people actually stop going to church. They're just like, great, I come back and you tell me what else I'm not doing. And if you're at a wall spiritually, it's hard to keep coming back and hearing what you're not doing. So this is not what you're not doing. This is an invitation from God as your loving Heavenly Father to go, let's let's go dig underneath the hood. Not so I can make you perfect, so I can make you whole. So all these parts integrate and you can say, it is well with my soul. Y'all with me here a little bit? So we're going to try to do that, and then we'll let the behavior stuff, it'll work out, all right? Now, last week we noted that in our, a lot of our self-help literature today says, uh, choose your best life now, or it'll say things like, uh, believe and do. Now, again, there is some truth to that. Uh, I understand what they're meaning when they, when they say things like, if you'll change your thoughts, then you'll change your whole life. And again, the problem is there's a little bit of, there is truth to that. There is some things along those lines. 
But what that does is it totally negates all these feelings that are very real, that are underneath all of that. The idea of just believe and do assumes you are a brain on a stick. And if you can get your brain to think the right thought, then you'll get your body to do the right thing. And again, in some ways, that could work. But eventually, at some point, I'm like, why can't I get through these various things y'all just mentioned? It's because underneath, underneath all of that, I am a nefesh. I am a living, breathing soul. I have real emotions, real feelings. And a lot of times we're doing our best not to be driven by these emotions and feelings, but in the process of trying not to be driven by them, we deny them. And we don't even know that. And again, we're trying to deal with sometimes with teenagers and you're like, no, you're really driven by them. Stop it. And we don't want to do that. And then we don't even realize that we start repressing our own, especially in our, in our busy, busyness. Now, emotions are, are, can, are good things. They're great things. It help you, helps you to experience the warmth of God, gives you intuition. It gives you creative thinking. Well, we talked about the first week. A lot of creative people have said, I'm, I'm losing that these days. Um, they give you a lot, of, a lot of great things. But as life goes on, if you start to feel a lot of pain, you'll start to try to numb yourself internally as if you can shut down bad feelings and keep the good ones. But that's just not the way your psychology works. You start to numb your heart, you'll actually numb both out. And you don't even mean to, and so you're trying to figure out, how do I come to life? How do I connect from God, with God? Why do I feel disconnected from God? What do I do about that? And so you may not even realize that maybe what you've done is something a little deeper. And I want you to hear this because I said the, you know, the last couple of weeks, I'm, I'm, I'm looking around the room, I know a good number of you, I'm not dealing with people that just got saved yesterday and are learning to do a quiet time. You've been walking with the Lord. You've got some spiritual tread on your tires. So you know that if you're, not feeling discon- if you're feeling disconnected to God, I'm assuming that everybody in this room knows this and has done this where you go, Lord, there must be some what? Sin in my life. So what is it, Lord? Is it unforgiveness? What's there? Because you're not talking to me. What's going on? And God's so gracious. Sometimes he's like, yep, that's exactly right. He reveals that. But then when you're like, okay, did that, there's no sin. I'm a sinner, but I, there's no big thing. I repent of everything I know to do. Then what do I do? And that's where we kind of, that's where we find ourselves here tonight. What I found is it could be, we've got this on the screen for you um, as well. It could be that there's a combination of these three other elements, that there's a lie I am unconsciously believing, a grief I am knowingly or unknowingly grieving, or in an emotion I'm experiencing that has become a reality in my mind, my body, and possibly my relationships. A lie I am unconsciously believing, a grief I am knowingly or unknowingly grieving, and those unknowing griefs are the hard ones. You may not even realize that's happening. We'll share about that in a minute. Uh, an emotion I'm experiencing, and that emotion has become a reality in my mind, become a reality in my body, and possibly my relationships. Like we said, it's affecting all of those things and not really sure uh, <clears throat> what to do about it. Here's the deal. If we, if we, if we choose, though, to say, I'm going to repress this, 
I should be better than this. Heck, I'm 50 years old. I know how to stand on the Word of God, name it. This is the Word of God. This is my promise. Claim it. I'm going to step into it. I know how to do that. But I'm, I'm just like, so get your act together. Get your act together. I repress this. What we don't realize is grief could be piling up inside of us. And we're, we're as a culture, we're not great at grief. We're really not. And you, 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 I, I, don't, I don't know if there is a culture that's great at grief other than the Jewish people. I got invited by my rabbi friend to come to an event at their synagogue. They do a lot of it in Hebrew, so I'm lost as a goose. And there's this point, though, where like people start standing up all over the room, and everybody's saying these words, and, and uh, I turned around to the lady next to me, and I'm like, am I supposed to stand up? And she said, has anyone close to you died in the last year? And I said, no. And she's like, all of these are people who are still carrying grief from the last year. We're praying over them. And they were standing up, and this is a regular routine. And I thought, back to the Psalms, that some of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, where David is pouring out the grief of his heart. They don't even really end on a, and God, you're good. It's more like, let the heads of those people be dashed. Selah, you know. He's just pouring his guts out there. And he is, is grieving it. And we, we're not always the best at this. And we don't even realize that it can be congested in there. And then someone pushes a button. And if we aren't able to grieve it, then we're actually not able to go, what's the lie under all of this that could be driving me that I don't even know? So while it may look like this is the order, if I repress this, I could be stepping into that. And then I'm like, I keep doing my quiet time, but for some reason it's just, it's just not... It's just not clicking. So that's why I said we want to learn to actually start thinking backwards. And so we're going to do that by looking at a man named King Saul. Scale of 1 to 10, how do y'all think he did? Yeah, 3. Okay, you're going to get that's, that's good. I was going a little lower than that. Good job. Uh, that, that's awesome. Uh, Saul blew his life up. In my, and, but when you look back at Saul, you go, okay, one day, Saul... You're going to like raise a guy from the dead through a medium and use sorcery and witchcraft to get him to come to life so that you can get some advice from that person. And you're going to really not be blessed by God for doing that. When did Saul wake up and say, today's the day. Today's the day I go off the rails. Y'all watch this. He does that about as much as we do that. Nobody ever wakes up and says, today's the day my finances go into complete disarray. Today's the day I will blow up the family. Nobody ever wakes up and says that any more than Saul did. But there could be this moment where we go, oh, okay, something happened in my life. You might get more compassion for Saul as we, uh, as we look. So let's look, at, let's look at this. We're going to read. We're going to start in 1 Samuel 18, and we're going to start reading the Bible backwards. Okay? Not really backwards, word for word. I'm not taking you back to your 1980s secular music uh, phase that, you know, we did that. But... But what I am going to do is just let you start reading verses and go, where did this come from? Let's just get curious, okay? Let's start with 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 10 and 11, okay? It's going to come up on the screen. Uh, So it says, while David was playing the harp with his hand, as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand, Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from him twice, okay? And you think, David, you think Saul woke up that day and said, today's the day that I'm going to throw a spear at David? Probably not. Would anybody call that anger? 
Yeah? Okay. Make sure that I'm, we're all tracking, okay? So we're going to say, he throws a spear. An anger explosion occurs. Let's read backwards. Let's go to, okay, Saul, what happened to precede that, okay? Besides the fact that you have demons. Let's just, we'll throw that aside, okay? Start with verse 7. Uh, here's the scene. We've just had some big wars. Saul and David are coming back. The picture is like they're in the same carriage, and it is a Super Bowl parade because of the victories that are going on. And as they come into town, women start singing. The women sang as they played and sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they've ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. So it could be that the spear didn't just come out of nowhere. Before the spear, there was a song. Are we mad at all these women for singing this song? I'm not mad at the women for singing their song. Probably a good song. Doesn't rhyme, but you know, thousands, thousands, I guess. But you know, but it's probably, they just sang their song. I once heard someone recently say that the definition of anxiety is what we get when we don't get what we think we need. What we get when we don't get what we think we need. What Saul thought he needed was a song about him being the 10,000th guy. And he needed some recognition that he did not get and a spiritual son got it in his place. And some anxiety begins to come to the surface. I would argue that that is not where it began. And if you keep reading backwards in Saul's life, just keep reading backwards, you'll see there's something that's underneath all of that. Let's go all the way back to chapter 10, verse 21. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families, and the Matrite family was taken. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he's hiding himself by the baggage. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Now, if you keep reading, what you learn is that they actually stood him up and said, there's nobody like him. And they said, then, then he must be the king. Hail to the king, basically. But if people are going to praise you for your external traits, then they can also criticize you for external traits. Your external will build up. Your external will build down. So what we see here is something that was beginning way back in Saul's beginning that I would term as shame, meaning there is something fundamentally flawed. Nobody said, you have on the insides what this nation needs. So there's a fundamental feeling of something is flawed. And then a song is sung, and it actually tends to uh, confirm that feeling. And then a spear gets thrown. See how you can kind of think backwards through this stuff? These are, these are three key emotions. This anger, anxiety, and shame are three key emotions that psychologists call primary distressing emotions. Primary distressing emotions. And these emotions, anxiety, anger, and shame, they're not just things that Saul experienced. I believe we experience these all the time. And what I've learned in the last uh, year, year and a half, is that we actually experience them a lot. We just don't actually know what we're experiencing. 
uh, we, we, don't, we have certain connotations which, with each of these that are probably accurate, but then there's things underneath all of that that we may not realize. So what we see here is that when you see that Saul experiences that deep sense of, I'm not who I should be, that's his something, then a trigger goes off, all right? Now, when I define trigger, I'm defining the tri- a trigger as the setup that sets you off, Okay? It's the setup that sets you off. Again, and it could be no one's fault. They just sang a song. They just pushed the oxygen tanks. Nobody's fault. But it, but it sets you off, and then you end up throwing a spear. Again, maybe you, you're starting to go, oh, yeah, I've done that recently. I mean, Blair and I have had a couple people recently tell us, like, these are very godly, mature people come to us, and they start talking, and what they're basically saying is, I just did this very immature, ungodly thing, and I have no idea where it came from. Now, I don't play all psychologists on them, but in my head, I'm like, there's something, you know? It didn't, it didn't come out of nowhere. Even, even at our family dinner last week, I didn't know that two of my daughters had like a, about a 24-hour standoff of not talking to each other. I didn't know that. In case y'all thought we we're just like experiencing revival 24-7 at the Kelly House, like, we got issues too. And I was like, y'all did? What happened? And one of my daughters, who's historically late, was late getting to the car and to get in the car with the daughter who, who is historically 45 minutes early wherever she goes. And they began to explain, and now they're laughing about it. It's, it's funny. And they're explaining what was going on as they're joking. I didn't know about any of this was going on. Typical clueless you know, dad and husband. And she's like, and, I, and my daughter, who's early everywhere, said, oh my gosh, I don't even want to replay this. I just want to say beforehand, I acted like a four-year-old. And I was like, way to go. That's great that you said that. And then she begins to explain how she reacted towards my daughter who was late the whole time, all right? What she's saying is, I have no idea why I threw the spear that I threw. All I know is she sang a song and got late to the car. And his parents are going, okay, well, that's going to happen. And it's going to get a little worse over the years. So what's underneath there that maybe could be plugging up something that God wants to do a little digging deep inside, okay? Because if, we're deal- if we have these thoughts of anger, anxiety, and shame, you can begin to see how if you have these things and then someone steps on that uh, landmine, something could actually uh, blow up, all right? So that's kind of where our, our hypothesis, you might say, all right? Here's our hypothesis. Our hypothesis is that uh, it says lesson number two is that most of my actions are merely reactions. Most of my actions are merely reactions to past events, untended wounds and emotions and or lies. Not always, but most of my actions are actually reactions. And so what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to play some of these things through by looking through these different pieces. Okay, let's take anxiety. Let's start with anxiety. When you think of anxiety, what are some things you think about when you experience anxiety or the, or the idea of someone experiencing anxiety, what are some things that someone would experience? Loss of control. Loss of control. Yeah. You don't have control. Feeling something boil up. Uncertainty. Uncertainty. Stress. Stress. That's right. All these things are right. Fear. Huh? Fear. Fear. That's exactly right. I think a lot of us identify pretty quickly with like with, with fear. Um, and, uh, but again, you may not always realize, some people may not realize that, uh, a, a constant annoyance with other people can actually be a sign of anxiety. 
a, uh, a, you know, a losing my temper often, uh, if I struggle with going to sleep or staying asleep, which has been my issue for a couple of years, not going to sleep, but staying asleep, that can be signs of, of anxiety. Um, uh, if, we're, if we're afraid of going to, into social situations, a buddy of mine recently told me his daughter stopped going to the youth ministry. She's just afraid of social situations. There could be some anxiety in there. And then there's, there's t- or, or tension in your body would be another one. I guess we have a chiropractor here. Dr. Bowman, would you agree with that? As, I mean, I said last week, who wants a rage-free chiropractor? You need to go to him. He is a great uh, uh, chiropractor. But have you experienced people walking in and, yeah? How does that play out? What do you end up talking to them about through that? <laughs> you could do a whole lesson. Yeah. Our emotions can alter postural muscle tone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We might need to hold do whole a whole interview. There'd be a, a, so many fascinating things with what Dr. Bowman just said, but but it makes sense because I you know I I felt a lot of those things you're talking about. I remember talking to my counselor Bill, and uh, uh, another thing another thing that could be a, a, a area of anxiety is if you are consistently replaying in your mind a certain upsetting experience or circumstance that happened in your life. If you can't get it out. And I had a couple uh, situations like that that I could not shut off. And so I was having like, uh, y'all ever have like fighting fantasies in your head? Like you're in the shower and you're like, I am so winning right now. I am tearing them down right now. I'm winning this argument, you know? And I told my counselor, I was like, I can't get it to stop. Like I wish it was a CD. I wish we did those still so I could push eject and it came out. Like I can't get it to stop. And I will look up and I've lost 12 minutes. 20 minutes, whatever. And he's like, oh, you don't have an issue here. You have an issue here. There's actually some emotions that are fused to some wounds. And, and God's wanted to, we, we got we to deal with that. And I was like, great, can you push that button? Give me a pill. Do what, whatever you want to do. Just get it out. Um, and we'll talk a little bit later about how God began to untangle some of that in me. Let's go to the other one. Let's talk about anger. How, how does that manifest? Anybody? Sarcasm. That's right. Throwing stuff. Yeah. Now we're getting real. Throwing stuff. Flair just said that. Last night she's like, isn't there some place we can go where we throw stuff? They, they let you just throw things. And What's it called? Not the escape room. No. Oh, no, there's the axe throwing. Yeah, that's not where we want the rage freaks to go. But yeah. No, it's like a rage room or something, right? Is that what I heard? No, I don't know. You smash stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, we need to go there and just kind of get it out, all out of our system. Um, those are some things we think about, but we may not think about, like, I just feel like some, some simmering resentment inside of me or consistent frustration. People aren't getting their act together. Occasional angry reactions. I'm going, where did this come from? Um, here's what I did not know till recently is that um, a lot of people experience anger as repressed shame. That, that anger is known by many as a secondary emotion, 
And what's really underneath all of that is you're feeling distant from me, and you're like, he's ticked off at me. I can just feel it. But what you may be experiencing from me is that I'm actually ticked off about the way I'm handling the situation, so I'm actually mad at me. And I'm also a little frustrated at you for the way you're handling the situation, but it actually is more repressed shame than it is just outright frustration and narcissism and anger at everybody else. So this has been a big place of work for me that I've had to do some, some digging. My, um, uh, and uh, and that, has, that, deals, that delves into the next part here about shame, okay? So shame, I, you know, probably should be its own series. I, I think I've learned a lot that there's a lot of uh, shame work that needs to be done inside of us. But shame actually says that there's an ideal This is who I should be. But then there's the real. This is who I am. And in this gap is where shame begins to speak. In the gap between that ideal and real is where shame starts screaming, and it's always saying, you're not the ideal. Something is wrong with you down here. You should be up here in whatever area of your life that is, okay? Now, I'm not talking about guilt. There's a difference in guilt and shame. Guilt is I did something wrong. I lied. I lusted. I, you know, kind of whatever it is, stole something, whatever it is. I did something wrong. I need forgiveness. But shame is I believe something is wrong with me. And that's not I did something, that's a fundamental problem with me. And as I was doing some kind of deeper soul work around the idea of shame, I read a book by Kurt Thompson called The Soul of Shame. I watched about 40 of his videos probably. And it stunned me when he said, um, he said, think about shame as being nauseated. When you're nauseous, what do you want to do? Huh? Get it out. Yeah, you want to throw up, right? He said, shame is not just an emotion. It's a physiological condition, which is why a lot of times if someone's saying they're dealing with shame, we'll think, okay, let's just pray and break that off right now in Jesus' name. And I believe the Holy Spirit can do that. He's a miracle worker. I believe God can do that. But a lot of times they walk away and they don't feel different. It's because it's actually a physiological thing that's gotten down inside of them. And he said, shame is akin to being nauseous without the ability to throw up. And it is carrying the gap inside of us. And it can be released through the work of prayer and the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit in the end. Remember that I talked about that passive spirituality. But shame is primarily released when someone whom you view through the lens of dignity puts honor on you. When someone you view through the lens of dignity puts honor on you. There's a man in our church by the name of David Wills. He's on our board. I think David could be the wisest individual walking on the planet right now. And I've led a couple things with him. And I was in a pretty low place for my sabbatical, like I said, and I made a, a leadership decision that was a mistake. And he called me as a board member. He was needing to seek some information about the church, so I'm giving him all these different datas and facts and whatever. And he can just tell where I was at. And I remember at one point he said, Carl, do you trust me? I was like, I trust you, of course. And uh, 
I just remember he said, Carl, I've been around a lot of great leaders. I just want you to know, after leading with you and being with you, you're a great leader. All of y'all could have said that, and I would have said, thank you so much, and I would not have believed a word of it. Why? Because I don't deem you as dignity? No. Love all of you. If you want to tell me I'm a great leader, it's great. I'll explain in a minute why I would not have been able to receive it from you. But he had been in the trenches of leadership with me. And he, I saw him up there. And when he did that, it was literally, I pulled over right over by Greater New Light Missionary Baptist Church and just wept. Because so, God was having to do a, a work of shame, that there was a gap inside of me that I was, that I was living in. And someone with dignity had to come in and be a representative of the Holy Spirit to begin to, to, to begin to let God break that off. What was really interesting for me in my dive into all these emotions and all this stuff was when my counselor, who's really big into the Enneagram, who is into the Enneagram in this room? Anybody? Who does not know what the Enneagram is? Who does not give a flip about the Enneagram? All right. My eights and fours just raised their hand. All right. Great. If you're not into it, just close your eyes for 12 seconds while I do this. He's writing a book called uh, The Enneagram and Your Emotions. Today, the Enneagram has been so put into like, here's your gift so I can just say, hey, I'm a seven. I don't do that. Okay. The monks who came up with this, that was never their intention. It was actually to expose your weaknesses and your need to interact with the mercy of God. So when Bill said, I remember Bill drawing this out for me one day in a group of people, and he's like, so if you're an eight, a nine, or a one, you are here probably going to have more of a tendency to need to interact with God in the realm of anger. If you're a two, three, or four, it'll probably be in the realm of shame. If you're a five, six, or seven, it'll be over here in anxiety. I am a one with a two wing. I went, boom. I was like, oh my goodness. This makes so much sense. Where has this been? And I read this quote by St. Teresa of Avila, and she says, almost, she said, almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from lack of self-knowledge. It wasn't about self absorption. It was about me realizing, oh, this is where I will need to be curious and interact with the mercy of God. And as I begin to see myself, I begin to see where I need God to come in and to stir some waters of renewal, okay? Because with all of us, there's usually a spear, a song, and a something. The goal is not to beat ourselves up. The goal is to figure out when was the song first played, all right? So let me just kind of play out a scenario for all of you to see how this could work practically, let's take marriage, okay? If you're not married, if you're not married, I bet you could understand it. I do need to clarify, this is not a real scenario, okay? I feel like that, that TV show that's like, all of these events were not, are actually fictitious. Any coinciding with real events is not, it was a coincidence, okay? Exactly, all right? So we're going to take a marriage, I mean, Blair and I, I told, called Blair beforehand and said, I promise, honey, you know, we were actually at an event where some people shared it along these lines. This is not me and Blair, okay? So we're going to say that there is a trigger that happens where the wife has a thought, hmm, my husband's being quiet. Why is he being quiet, okay? A trigger has gone off. That's the song. He's, he's just being quiet, okay? Now I'm going to go ahead and already reveal that there's something in the subconscious going on inside of her that she doesn't know. I'm going to tell you what the something is. The something is that her kids are teenagers now, and they're starting, to, she, they're starting to push back on her, and she is feeling their rejection. She doesn't know it, but enough of these scenarios, she's feeling their rejection, and it's unearthing rejection that she feels 
in her relationship with God or her husband. All right? She has no idea this is happening. They just had a day, and the husband is being quiet. All right? So let's play this out. So let's start with her mind. So we've got her mind right here. Again, what is your mind? It's your two things. It's your thoughts and your, and your feelings. And she has a thought. Mike's being quiet. Quiet equals he's mad at me. One key is that the husband is absolutely clueless during this entire time, all right? Which is true about 99% of the time, okay? He has no idea that this is all going on. <clears throat> he's acting quiet. He must be mad. So she makes a choice here in her will to surrender to that idea. So she's surrendering to the idea, he's mad at me. So now as this begins to play off, play on and on in her, in her head, she, in her body, may choose to do things. This may be totally subconscious. Subconscious means I'm doing it. I don't even know that I'm doing it. Don't even realize it. And she chooses to, she begins to withdraw. She might do that by going in another room. Uh, she's not going to make eye contact with him. I will say this one time. Can I say this, player? Do you want to say it? The big one? <laughs> we might have to have a talk afterwards or whatever. Um, yeah. <laughs> so bold of you. You want to say that on the microphone? You're, she's amazing. Wow. Yeah, we did have one day where she was like, I've not given you eye contact all day. I know you've noticed that, right? <laughs> no? <laughs> Had no idea, okay? So... She, in that case, Blair actually was choosing to do it, but that was that one time Blair sinned, and she's not doesn't do that anymore. But it could be things that I do. I don't even know that I do towards you, okay? But eventually, if I withdraw, I will probably attack, and I'll do that through passive-aggressive jabs, things you're not doing, whatever, okay? All right, so what does that do in my social environment? This triggers my anger, I'd say, as a husband. And any couples in here ever had a fight where you're like, what in the heck are we fighting about? You ever had that moment? Yeah. You know, you're like, <laughs> yeah, we've all, I mean, not just married couples. We all have this situation. We're like, why are we even fighting? We don't even know why we're fighting. A lot of times when you like, don't know what you're fighting, there is all this stuff going on on the inside. Someone just sang a song. And we don't even know why the spear went flying. But what we know is... Our soul feels in disarray, going this way, this way, this way, that way. And we don't quite understand what's going on, right? So then when you do a, a conference and you're like, this is called the Stop Withdrawing and Attacking Conference. <laughs> and everybody's like, taking notes, great. I don't, want to, I don't want to attack and withdraw. That's not Christian. Or, or that's your one practical you leave the service with. It's not helpful because you're sitting there going, gosh, there's something a little deeper inside of me. I need to be asking, why do I do this? And so, which in this case, the wife goes to the Lord and says, Lord, I want to interact with you. Could you explain to me why I'm feeling what I'm feeling? Could you, could you meet me in this place? And let the Holy Spirit speak. <clears throat> and in this case, maybe the wife would, would start to say, you know, in the future, he's also going to be quiet. And I'm going to think he's mad. And when that happens, I'm going to feel some pain. And so maybe I'll go to him and say, hey, I'm feeling some pain. Am I projecting that on you? I don't want to do that. 
she's beginning to do some courageous soul work because she's wondering, is there something beneath the thing that's inside of me? Not because she's flawed, but because she's human. She's had a life. And things are happening at such a lightning fast speed rate. We don't always understand what to do. So this is where you start to begin to spend some time. And, you know, I'm putting it all in triangles and circles. I mean, I add another little triangle in my, <clears throat> in my notes that you can see where she might have to do some digging and identify some triggers. But I want to look at that word, honor emotions. Because this is where we don't deny the emotions, but we're able to honor them and say, I, what I'm feeling is real. And then from that place, I might be able to examine some of the lies that are playing inside of me. Like when you're quiet, that means you're mad at me. I've done something. And now you're just one more person that's ticked off. But I've got to give honor to that emotion and not be like, I, I'm 45. I should be older than this. I should be better than this. And doing that in the context of a safe person is the key. Now, I say that all because I could, it sounds so easy. It's like, great, Carl, give us another tri triangle and a circle, and I'm sure it'll be all better. But this is hard to do. But that middle word right there, if you've got no other homework, it's, a, it's that middle word right there. My prayer is that you would find a safe person with whom you have zero secrets. That you could be that husband or wife saying, hey, I'm beginning to feel some of this pain. Can I share this with you? without any fear of repercussions. This is where you'll begin to start seeing some of the emotion, those emotions get uncon, uncongested. Is that, is that a word? Is that a word? <laughs> Decongested. Thank you. Thank you. Decongested. Because then you'll be able to, able to receive some of this empathy. All right? Because here's the deal. You will only be able to be fully loved to the degree that you are fully known. You're only able to be fully loved to the degree you're fully known. And I saw this chart recently and I thought, wow, that explains Carl Gully in a chart. You got that little box there? Um, <clears throat> you can kind of see this like play it side to side at the top there. If I'm known, but I'm not accepted, meaning you know my junk, and then you still pull back from me, that's where I feel rejected. If, if, if I'm not known to you, and then you don't accept me, well, you're just a stranger, and that has zero ramifications in my life, most likely. But if I'm really accepted, but not really known, then you think I'm impressive, and this is where a lot of people live, especially pastors. Great sermon, pastor. Wow, what a great leader he must be. He gave another great talk. He's leading a great class. He, he did a great job getting that, that, that event happening. You did a great job of pulling this off. So I look very impressive. But you know what's playing underneath my head? If you really knew me, your opinion would change. It's the shame work we talked about. So the only way, this goes back to what I said earlier, when I said, why would I receive from David? Is because David's in my world. So he fully knows me. So when he accepts me, that's where the love of God is able to intersect with me. Because from the garden, we've been designed to be known, to know and to be known. But since the fall, this is what we're scared of. And so we can be fully known when we're fully loved, when someone steps in and says, I know you fully. I'm able to give you the empathy that you need. And then in that place of receiving that empathy, I can be loved. And it begins the decongested uh, work that has to happen. So here's what I want to do. 
I want, I want you to, uh, I think in your notes there it says, your turn or something like that. Is that what it says, Luke? Yeah. So a lot of times I say, take this exercise and work and take it home. I want you to just take about uh, five, six minutes right now and see if maybe a little spear song something moment might uh, play to your benefit. <clears throat> and you might need more than five, six minutes. You might need uh, five days. And so that's okay. Um, like I said, our goal is really not, we're not trying to fix something inside of you in seven weeks. I'm believing the Holy Spirit's beginning to build a new operating system inside of you for the rest of your life. And that just takes a little time. It's slow. It's messy work. But that's where the, the, the waters of renewal are. But I know that God will want to teach you how to, to think backwards how to look for the thing beneath the thing and to start giving honor to some of the emotions that you're feeling as opposed to saying, stop it. And start examining what, is, what could have happened and where did this come from. So as you do this, I want to really encourage you to pray that prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And interact with his mercy. This is not condemnation. This is you watching you from the side going, all right, here's the, here's the spear that I, that I threw when I overreacted to my child or when I decided not to go to that party or whatever it is, here's the song maybe that played out and maybe here's the something. And this probably just be a beginning process and I'm going to end, as I often do, by telling you my situation, all right? And uh, hopefully that will give you a little encouragement in the process. Go for it.
say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Like I said, I want you just to interact with his mercy and feel the, the great pleasure of that. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, Blair, one of the 
one of the bigger fights, I guess our bigger fights or starting point fights is is whenever I when, in general. In general is when I when you interrupt me. When we're in a conversation and you interrupt me. So you might have your or when you don't listen to me when I'm talking. <laughs> or that too. Or I that see, too. No, I see it as you're not listening to me. You yeah. just keep talking. Yeah. Because you see it as I'm interrupting. Yeah, you see it as I'm talking for 40 minutes straight. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's wrong, but I, but I understand if you, think, if you feel that way. Um, and so some of our bigger arguments have come when I am, I feel like I'm trying to explain something and then you'll chime in and start talking and it cuts me off. So. Um, we started having, we had a series of big blow-ups about this before I finally was like, what's going on there? <clears throat> why am I, why am I losing it internally when Blair just interrupts me in a conversation? So then I was like wondering, maybe this is, is this is Blair, this is a husband-wife thing. And I was like, do other people, does it, does it affect me when other people do it too? So I spent some time with the Lord and I was like, God, why does this keep happening. And I felt that he reminded me wasn't just a a thing with you. The thought, the thought that came to my mind was actually a board meeting, a church board meeting I was at for another church. And the entire board meeting, every time I wanted to share something I thought the church should do, another guy kept speaking up and saying that very same advice. And it happened for about two days straight. And I remember it was kind of like I was sitting the whole time like, what am I doing here? And the final, the final day, they brought up a scenario, a situation, and I had no idea how to handle it. And they turned to me and said, Carl, what about you? What would you say about that? I was like, I had two days worth of stuff I could have helped you with. I have no idea about what to do with this one. I didn't say that. I just probably bunked my way through the answer. But, but I just remember leaving feeling so stupid. And uh, so that wasn't like someone interrupting me, but it was like, I'm about to speak and they're speaking. And again, sometimes... How'd how that make you feel? <laughs> thank you for asking. <laughs> Honestly, it made me feel like at first, like, am I just a narcissist? Like, I just need everybody to listen to me. And that's why you're a preacher, because they have to listen. You know, they just keep coming back and they have to listen. Um, but I, as I interacted with the Lord, and again, it wasn't wasn't clear like the Holy Spirit was like clouds from heaven it was nothing like that I just remembered interacting with God on this going why do I why does this push a button in me and I just the best thing I could think of was that maybe it had to do with like last night even when we did uncle night with one of my nephews and we try to share vulnerably with our nephews our life and uh Two of my brothers said, when I was growing up, the main thing I felt is I'm alone. And I said, I didn't feel that way. I felt like I'm stupid. Like the whole world has life figured out, and they're all walking with such confidence, and I'm the only one who doesn't know what's going on, and I can't figure it out. And so I think that's been, that was kind of a realization for me that maybe I am, I'm, I'm carrying a little bit of that, that's a little bit of the landmine that was planted years ago, that I feel stupid. So then when you, when I'm trying to say something in a board meeting or with you, and then you interrupt me, 
I'm, I'm trying, it's almost like I'm trying to say what I'm saying so that I won't feel stupid anymore. Because a lot of times when I, when I do that, because I'm taking what I think you're saying and I'm speaking to it, and you're like, if you would just listen, you'd hear me. That that's not what I'm saying, or that this is, that is what I'm saying, but I want to say it, so that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't have a big uh-huh. smile on my face like yeah. you do at that moment, do I? <laughs> yeah. I'm not smiling as much. But right, you might jump in and say, I hear you're trying to say this, and you're trying to take that, and you'll try to dive that into the conversation. But in my mind, I was halfway through explaining, and then you cut me off. And I'm like, if you'll just shut up, I'll actually get to the rest of this stuff. <laughs> Have I ever said that to you? No. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> you can tell me we get home if I really did. It's not it's, coming to the top of my mind, yeah. but I forget things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the biggest blessing being married to you is that you really do forget a lot of stuff. <laughs> so when I come and repent, you're like, oh, I didn't even know you did that. I'm like, let's just go on then. Let's just forget about that. So I think that part of the work I'm trying to do internally is keep asking the Lord, where do I carry this sense of I can't figure out life? And then other people push those buttons. And it doesn't have to do with the fact that they chimed in. It has to do with that there's a, there's a thing in me I'm still trying to deal with. Does that make sense? And, I mean, genuinely, our family has reaped the benefit of you going to those places. And it's like something in you chilled out <laughs> that, like, God revealed that to you, and he's meeting you there. And then it really has. Even us being able to talk about it, I can empathize with where you're coming from and being like, oh, okay, he does care about what I want to say. Right. It's this is hitting on something different yes. in you, and this doesn't really have anything to do with me as much as most of it. it you're do. dealing with your own <laughs> I got it. That's stuff. A, yeah, in you sing a song, yeah. but I threw a yeah. spear. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, exactly. And wow, you think I chilled out? I do. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I, was, I received that. I received that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's the gap. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, on Blair's, if you're into the Strengths Finder, if you ever did that, in Blair's top five is the word empathy. I don't know if I even registered empathy on my Strengths Finder. Um, and empathy to me was kind of a weak thing that was just like, oh, we just, sure, I'm with you in it, kind of whatever. It just felt weak. But I, I, I think even when I started being with Bill, he would start showing empathy to me. And I'd be like, can you just get over the empathy and give me some advice so I know what the heck to do with my life? And at one point, I said to his wife, Christy, I, I, please don't go. Uh, I'll just, what I said is, please just don't BS me. Will you please give me the correction I need? And I remember Christy said, you don't need correction. You need the empathy from us so that your heart will actually warm to the empathy God wants to give you. And I was like, so you're hiding correction from me? It's coming later, but you're going to love me now? She's like, no, I'm not hiding anything. I tell you, but you have a thing where you push back against the empathy from us. So part of me has been learning how to receive empathy. So these types of conversations, when we go on walks, and I can share with you what I'm experiencing, part of that's because when we went to Michigan to an experience, on your last page, there's this big, long chart. I'm not going to explain that big, long chart. I'll just say 
that when I saw that chart that Andrew gave us, who's our counselor, and I started to look through them, I was like, oh, wow. One of these is like the cheerleader encourager who just cheers you up. And that's not what you do. I've been doing that for 40 years, you know, and begin to understand that empathy truly is able to feel your emotion before you do, to give words to that, to come back to that, not for the purpose of correcting, but for the purpose of, of engaging with you. And if you are able to receive that from you, then I'm able to actually then open up to God and let him do some of that emotion work, the grieving work, the lies and all that stuff. So. There's probably a place for I, I can't I haven't looked at that chart in a long time, but there's maybe a place for those type of communications. Absolutely. But yeah. initially, being for someone to be able to really feel known and loved, it's it's really good. Just guardrails of like, oh, this is how to be a better listener. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, what they would do is yeah, at seven thirty we got to end. But what they would do at these events is they would just we were only allowed sometimes to just say a few words. And so just just imagine Kim just pours her heart out for like twelve minutes all the hard things in her life, and we go, that sounds very difficult. <laughs> you know? And it would be so hard to not keep talking, because I'm like, Kim, don't think that way. You're amazing, you know? And they would be like, don't cheerlead. They don't need a cheerleader right now. Now, if I have that place of honor in Kim's life, then maybe I could be a David Wills to her in that moment. But but I was learning, how, how do I give her the empathy that her needs? Bill says, empathy is oxygen for the soul. And that's the safe place you've been for me to be able to process these things. Um, why, don't we, why don't you wrap us up, Blair? Because um, I know you don't always feel these thoughts and emotions as clearly. But I also, I don't think I'll wrap it up very succinctly. So you can, but I just wanted to say, in going to things beneath the thing, Carl has like a more interesting life. I feel like, like it's like literally, I was finding things out in counseling. I didn't know you went through that as a kid, or I had no idea. You know, like things that I'm just like that. That's a big deal. Um. Anyway, and where it's like me, I'm like I don't know. I'm like blank on a lot of. When we go through these things, and so I partly just want to say that if you're feeling like I don't know what the thing beneath the thing is, mm-hmm. that can be normal too. And what helped me more was just kind of going with the. I'm not. Um, I probably do repress emotions or whatever, and so we literally were away at this place for three weeks, and so it was like you had to deal with something. Um, so. <laughs> One day I just started, like, I was like, I'm mad. And I was like, I'm just going to journal. And I mean, I like, I just kept writing and writing and writing all these things I was mad about. And anyway, they had me share it in this group, which I know is like horrible. And I was like, they don't know me. They'll never really see me again. So I was able to tell them all the things I was mad about. And really, it did. She's a nine. So. Yeah. <laughs> some, so it's there. There's some anger there. Behind the smile. But, there's some um, but anyway, I think that even though I don't always know what the thing beneath the thing is or the something there. That was a way, though, for me. It really, talk about decongested, like it really did help to get it out there mm-hmm. and to have people and just be like, when you say honoring your emotions, yeah, it's not like letting them. It's not an excuse not for saying giving them. honor. No. Do you know what I'm saying? But yeah. just being real with, hey, that is actually there. and We validate that that's you feel okay. that. That's yeah. right. That's hard. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, it makes sense because not everything fits into a triangle and a perfect little graph, and it all fits like this. It, it fits into a talk. It's just yeah. not always everyday. I'm, I'm life. open for God to show me yeah. things, but, but it's not always. But easy, it's not always so. as easy for me to figure yeah. out. Well, 
I'm blank a lot. Prayer ministry, I'm blank. I'm like, I've just, I get anxious about <laughs> About going to prayer ministry. It's like, I don't, so, know, I don't know. Probably something in there. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, but yeah. grace for, there's grace for the process yeah. in that too. And just wanted to share that with you guys so that you can, I hope you'll have that safe person you can share those things with to begin the decongesting part because I think that's part of how renewal waters flow. So why don't you pray for us as we close. Lord, we do thank you that you created our minds, our emotions, our spirits, our bodies, all these things, Father. And we just are coming before you and asking you to meet us. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your gentleness. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And I just thank you for the work that you're doing in each person uniquely in this room. And we just pray for everything that is of you and for them to stick and anything that's not just to fall off and mm-hmm. um again that they would be able to walk out more connected and knowing um your love towards them mm-hmm. than when they walked in we love you in jesus name amen um, look at your neighbor and say keep coming back it works <laughs> all right love you guys have a good night <laughs>